Hey everyone, welcome back. Just in time for another special episode. Last time we had Steve interviewing me about my experiences actually attending one of these global climate conferences. Uh, but instead of talking to an insider, we all hate those these days, and experts, let's talk to an outsider, a man who knows absolutely nothing about the subject. <laughs> let's turn it over to Steve. Steve, what are your thoughts on these global climate conferences? And ultimately, how do you feel? Let's talk about finance. That's something simple that someone with a brain of your size could understand. The smoothness, <laughs> the wrinkles are very lacking. So uh, what do you think about this issue? I mean, all the brainiacs haven't figured it out. Steve, how do you think we should solve climate change? Should we even try to? No, Nick. You know, I think at this point, we're far too gone from being able to solve it. The, the, the problem is, is here. The solutions that have been presented do nothing for it. We need to as I mentioned, we need to focus on this post-climate change world. What does that mean? How do we adapt? Do we raise our houses? Do we build up these seawalls? What does that world look like? That's where the conversations need to go because as far as I'm concerned, we've the ship has already left the port. You know, as you mentioned, you know, we've been making progress. We're kicking the can down the road. Some of these countries have been have been doing more than most, but in my mind, the train has not even left the station. Joe Biden is asleep buying his ticket at the desk. He's not even on. China and India, they're bickering in the front of the train and all the smaller countries couldn't even afford to get tickets to be there. So I think we got to stop with all the with all the bullshit, Nick. And I never realized how much of an, I'm not going to call myself an activist. I'm no Greta here, all right? I'm no David Attenborough. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. But I can see the impacts that this is having on the world. And I'm not satisfied with the progress has been made. And I don't think that we can really reverse it at this point. Do you think we should, uh, you know, do tougher regulations on these corporations? I mean, who's who's the evil person at fault here? Should we just say, oh, a bunch of Indian people want power? No power for them. They're not allowed to because climate change is too big of a threat. You can't burn that coal. You got to go sit it at, at night. No light for your kid when they're trying to do their homework and build a better life for themselves through education. You know, we've enjoyed the privilege and uh, you just don't get that step. Well, you know, if that's the price that someone has to pay so I can have my beach house in South Carolina, then so be it. But no, I, you know, that's, I think that's the, my, that's the, the standpoint that some people take. And I don't think that we should force countries like India, like these developed, you know, these island nations that maybe they have a lot of people who live in poverty or don't have access to basic amenities. I don't think we should hold the same standards that we would hold a country like the United States to enforce that on them. They have they they need to get to a basic level of of access to really civilization before we can start regulating and telling them how to do it. But I think that's a whole other conversation. But you mentioned regulation. Truthfully, I don't think regulation does anything. Let's look, let's just focus on the United States for the for the purpose of this conversation. You know, we they're one of the world's biggest contributors to global you know uh, gas emissions. Number two right now, but first uh, biggest historically. You're right historically. Let's focus on the United States. Talk about regulation. Let's let's focus on 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 big tech. All you know, them privacy around data, the effects on mental health. We we bring them into Washington. We have these politicians, these fat cats, all in one room, and they talk about what's going on, the impact, and then they try to come up with something to regulate it. But it never really solves the problem because there's a lack of understanding, and and really, there's only so much I think that regulation can do. On the flip side, though, and I'm and I'm I'm going to applaud a lot of the corporations within the United States. Maybe not all of them. You know, a lot of the big names that do get a lot of press coverage for really owning their comp, you know, their 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 emission chains, their their emissions throughout the various scope, and really working to come up with a plan 
and to mitigate their emissions because at the end of the day, it's good PR, it's gonna drive you know, that social responsibility and it's gonna lead to investor buy-in, happy stakeholders, happy consumers. It's good for business. How do you feel and, about that yeah. though? Because a lot of activists and a lot of people who care deeply about the issue would say, oh, well that's insincere. These corporations don't actually care about climate change. They're just doing it for their bottom line. They're just doing it for marketing purposes and they're not serious about it. How do you but feel about that perspective? I don't know why it matters. It's the same thing for the utilities who are supplying us the power. It's all, a, look, look, everything, the way that this world works is based around finance. There needs to be profit. There needs to be an incentive to spend money to do something because at the end of the day, am I going to make more money from doing that or am I going to cut my cost? It's basic economics. We're not going to see any impact unless you can put it into dollars and cents. So sure, is it insincere? I don't know, maybe, unless you're Mark Benioff you know, of Salesforce, who really seems like an all-around good guy who cares about a lot of these issues. I don't know. It, it doesn't really matter to me. If you're putting in the work and if you're cut, doing it to, to cut costs or to maximize shareholder investment, whatever. It drives us towards the outcome we need to get. Oh, so it's only about shareholders, Steve? Stakeholders don't matter? You're going to round on the business roundtable themselves? I'm not going to say that they don't matter, but ultimately, wh why do these stakeholders get together and make any decision? Because they want to increase the amount of, of, of money coming in. They want to incentivize their shareholders to buy more in, to contribute more, to drive up the price of the stock, to increase the value of their company. And, and ESG, climate change, is a very easy way to do it. You, 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 know, you certify a couple of buildings, you, you put some regulations or some standards on your supply chain, you, know, you move your factory from, I don't know, from China to the United States, looks good for business. You Does know. it look good for business? I thought uh, that would just add more costs. So are you saying that the marketability of it actually outweighs some of those cost-saving measures of why we outsourced uh, labor in the first place? Is that your well, perspective? I was, that was an example. I think that getting a little bit away to that. I've got a great idea for a startup that I'd love to sell you if that's the case. <laughs> I, I'm all ears, Nick. But no, I, 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 to go back to your question, I don't think it matters whether these corporations are sincere or not. It's all about driving towards this outcome. And, and ultimately, it is going to be about private investment that drives a lot of the technologies, a lot of the implementations of these renewable energies to bring us to that you know, net zero or whatever the target that we're sort of going after is. So you think we should all bow down and uh, you know, really start praying to daddy Elon Musk, oh, Elon, please save us from ourselves. We need your electric vehicles. We need your solar panels. You're our only hope, Elon. Is that it? The private sector is the big shebang and public sector governments, they don't matter? I think there's a place for both, but ultimately, where do we see a lot of the innovation come from in this day and age? And it is the private sector. I'm not going to say that the government, the public sector doesn't contribute a lot to research, to innovation. It certainly does. And they've, they've brought us a lot of the way here. But with so much money, with the private sector having so much access to money, being able to throw billions of dollars at unproven technologies just to fuck around and see what happens, you don't have that that. Dy that dynamic nature with the public sector. And I think you can drive outcomes at a faster rate in the private sector. You can fail fast and learn. Are you, do you think they're willing to take those risks though? Because what unproven technologies are they really financing? I mean, we've already spent, I think globally, um, 
you know, tens of billions of dollars on clean energy finance this year. And ultimately, like, what is there for Bank of America or any of these large institutions to really throw money and say, oh, man, these climate plays are going to make a ton of money. The fact is, I don't think they really are. Otherwise, actually, see the institutional investors throwing oodles of cash. Actually, I disagree with you, Nick. The term is climate tech, and it is the biggest name in the venture capital space the last year, if not in 2020 as well. And there's been $30 billion this year alone thrown into various initiatives within the climate tech space. And maybe 30 billion isn't used to the trillions of dollars that you hear about when you think of a company like Microsoft or Tesla even, but it's a significant amount of money for a sector that is relatively small. And the idea here is that within there is there's a huge opportunity here because climate it's it's not it's not a sector in of its own. It impacts all laterals. There's it has an impact on agriculture, on tech, on finance. And there are so many companies coming to the table with ideas on how all of these sectors can benefit from moving towards renewable energies, clean technologies, and making a, a less of an impact uh, or less of an overall environmental impact on our society. Yeah, but Steve, those VC firms are like CPT Capital, Prelude Ventures, Coastal Adventure, Blue Horizon Corporation, what, you just Straight look, you just, Dog you just, Capital. You just no, because I have up. notes on this. I have notes on this, and I know this for a fact because I did look up that $30 billion before we even got on this pod. Thank you very much. I'm the expert here. You're the dummy. <laughs> know your role. In any case, those are not these huge banks. Sure, VC investors, I agree. They do put a lot of money into these promising technologies that, you know, sure, they look at the, oh, look at the ROI, look at the NPV. This is going to be sick on our balance sheet. Or maybe they do off balance sheet financing. I'm not, I'm not actually sure. But in any case, um, you know, these companies are doing this. But how do you feel about the underlying tech itself? What do we have to show for this? Like, for example, electric vehicles, that's been the biggest success story that everyone pushes. Do you think that those are actually effective? Just the other day, a bunch of people were locked out of their Teslas because the app didn't work, so they couldn't even start their car on, or unlock their doors. Well, be that as it may, that's a whole other side of the coin. You know, everything today is tech. You get locked out of your bank account. You get locked out of your car now. Why not? I think something like EVs, I mean, there's always going to be a positive and a negative. You know, you talk about, you like to talk about batteries. You like to claim that you're some sort of expert. I have yet to see any credentials from you, but I think a lot of us have heard of the detrimental effects of, of developing batteries, of the mining, of the procuring, of this, this, uh, getting, you know, just getting rid of the batteries once they've, they've maximized their lifetime. How do you do that in a clean way? And I think a lot of the argument has been that, well, these batteries actually contribute maybe just as much, if not more to global warming or, you know, global warming or heating, whatever the term is these days, than if we were just to stick with glass, gas. So, I mean, you really got to look at it <laughs> and, and look down the whole, you know, it, the whole by the way, it doesn't. Chain. It doesn't. So battery storage, sure, on the California electric grid when paired with things like coal, it obviously has a net uh, negative impact because just the economics weren't there in the early days. But now battery storage has matured quite a lot. You know, a couple of years ago, utility companies, battery storage was like, oh, my God, there's this brand new thing. We don't really know what to do with it. Now it's like, oh, yeah, we've got a battery storage division, whatever, no big deal. But um, as far as auto manufacturing companies, for example, I was at this presentation where some chief scientist at Ford was sort of walking through, hey, here's the greenhouse gas emissions profile that we see in you know, our cars as it is right now versus if we went fully EV or even if we went hydrogen. And comparing those three options, you know, stick with gas as it is right now, going hydrogen or going EV uh, with batteries, batteries ended up being the best solution from a greenhouse gas perspective and brought down the total emissions 
by a much larger factor than any other alternative. Okay. So quick fact check. Well, well, that's in the case of automotive though. But I mean, if you look at, you know, everything from the devices, the batteries in our phones to computers, to everything today, I think there's an impact there and maybe exclusive to, you know, the automotive industry there, it is a clear benefit to going with, with EVs. But Steve, and, that's the big thing is electric cars. People don't want electric cars down when you're rolling, uh, rolling coal, when you got some big trucks, what's a little wimpy electric battery going to do for my big truck, Steve? All right. Well, if we're getting into it, electric vehicles actually, due to the to the design of them, they're often a lot faster, a lot more fun to drive, a lot more powerful than your traditional gas car. So anyone who thinks that, oh, I've got to have my my V8, V12 Ferrari to have a good good time with a car needs to be gas only, diesel if I can get it. That's not necessarily the case. You know, I think all in all to say, yes, EVs have been the biggest topic in the news because, I mean, look at gas prices right now, above $4, if not even close to 5 in most of the country. You know, our reliance on oil, both domestically and internationally, is, is a problem at a consumer level because most people, especially coming out of COVID, maybe they don't have the money to afford putting in four-plus dollars of gas, you know, into their tank every time they need to fill up. In the United States, it's a massive country. We utilize our cars to get everywhere to travel very long distances. This isn't Europe where the closest town is like, or the next town is like five miles away. Most of our towns are sometimes at least, you know, in the Northeast or Midwest can be spread out 20 plus miles. You need a car, you're traveling large distances. And really the cheapest way to do that in this decade is gonna be going the electric vehicle route where you can quickly charge. You're not putting a ton of money into the gas tank um, and you're getting to where you need to go. Maybe even, Maybe even in an autonomous way. I don't know. That's that's. You're not bullish on trains, then. I'm very bullish on trains. I love trains. I wish trains in this country were more effective. You're so full of shit, dude. You're so facetious. Okay, look. Yeah, what is this tone of voice? Okay, do you like the trains? Do you not like the trains? You just had a huge boner for electric vehicles and cars, and now you're going to tell me you love trains too? What were you playing with the little sets as a kid, ramming them into each other? I was. I was doing exactly that. I was. I wanted to be. I wanted to be a train conductor. It was fun. No, I think the, I, I think the problem is difficult to look at trains today and say yes, this is the solution to you know driving or reducing emissions you know from a transportation basis and getting to where I need to go in a very effective way. Because if you look at the train system within the United States, that it is incredibly ineffective. It's faster for me to get in my car and drive from New York City to Boston than it is to get on the Amtrak train to get there. If I want to go from New York to California. I can't take a train there. I've got to get on some big carbon polluting plane and do that. Granted, I'm sure in any you instance, could get on a train. Yeah, the the networks you've got, do go. You've coast got to, to change coast stops. You got to get no, from one right. line to the another. It's probably going to take you 24 hours. I don't know if you'll ever be able to complete with a plane on that regard. But I think when you look at countries like Europe, Japan, where they have these- <laughs> countries like Europe. Please continue. <laughs> All right. Geographic regions like, con- I'll, I'll call it a continent, Europe, Japan, countries like Japan. Japan is not a continent. Oh my. <laughs> when you look at these areas around the world where you see what their trains are possible of, it really makes you look at the infrastructure with America and say, what the hell are we doing? Oh, it's garbage. It's garbage. I mean, I think there's limitations, especially within the Northeast, just due to the amount of available uh, real estate, really, that is buy them out. Eminent domain. Take the people, put them somewhere else. <sighs> it's an unpopular opinion, Nick. It does not win votes. I will tell you that much. But who knows? Maybe that's that's what we need to do. 
maybe Joey Boy has got a plan cooked up somewhere in that infrastructure bill to do that. I don't know. But look, I think overall there's an impact to every one of us, whether we're a minority based in some island in the Caribbean that's dealing with the real tangible effects of climate change, or we're a consumer in America where, sure, I don't really care so much about climate change because it's not affecting my townhouse in Manhattan. You know, it, it really comes down to what, you know, what dimension of your life are impacted. For us, it's more about economics. It's how much money am I putting in the gas tank? Are my, is the cost of goods increasing? I'm not really so concerned with whether my house is going to be here in five or 20 years. You know, very different problems than someone in the Caribbean. So I think from a policy level, regulation, regulatory level, COP initiative level, that's how they need to focus it. And I think it's misplaced to kind of put out these targets, to put out these guidelines at a global level because everyone's priorities are different. What each country needs to do to sort of survive in, again, this post-climate world is going to be different. And granted, I understand that there's significance to the solidarity of, of solving climate change, but I think, you know, it needs to be a little bit more specific and not to say that it isn't, but I don't think the messaging I is I think there you just said that it isn't. You're saying not to say, but it sounds like you're saying it isn't. It's not specific enough that you would like. What do you want them to specify? No, I think each country should come out of that, of not of that, of like a cop thing, but each country should pub publish what they are doing to offset climate change within their country. What does oh, that mean to them? Sort of like what they are doing uh, under the Paris Agreement and through the COP process where you have these NDCs that outline just that. And not only that, but also um, you said that all these countries should do it individually. So you don't think that a global, you called it global warming. So you don't think something that's titled global warming should have a global community of people trying to address it? Well, look at, look at, the global markets. We have the Fed. You know, they are implementing monetary policy within the United States, which certainly has an impact at a global level, but ultimately it's a set to try to reduce inflation, et cetera, within our domestic in our country. So yes, there's a global aspect to an issue like climate change, but there's domestic policies that can be implemented to have a more direct impact on that economy or that group of people. That's fair. Um, but I would say that they do that already that in these plans, they're calling out what you're doing as a country. So the United States will pull out in its NDC, for example, nationally determined contributions. Hey, here's what we're doing in America. And the same thing will go on in Saudi Arabia. Granted, Saudi Arabia is, is kind of a joke, <laughs> but at least they do put something out. They put it out, but how are we measuring the progress? You know, I, I get, yeah, obviously if I go to the, whatever, the White House website, I can find all these nice little documents put together of all the targets we're hitting. You're not going to read them. Here's no, our one no one reads them. And I'm not asking for some one brief one pager on, on all of our progress, but you know, th they say we're doing all this good. What good? All I know is that this, this winter, my heating bill is going to be expensive. It costs me an arm and a leg to fill up my car. And I hear about if I want to move to California, that there's probably going to be, you know, a firestorm every single year. So you talk about impact and being able to show that we're actually solving the problem. I don't see it. You can put out as many white papers as you want, as much thought leadership as you want, track, throw together as many statistics as you want to try to track against. But we need to see actual tangible evidence that all of this bullshit is really amounting to anything. So what would be that tangible evidence? What would get you going? What would you be happy with? I don't have a good answer for you, Nick, truthfully. 
<laughs> I don't know. What, what, the true you, American what, way. You, I'm you, upset <laughs> about this. Okay, how can I make it better? Look, I don't you, know, but I am upset. <laughs> you bring me in as a smooth brain individual who knows nothing about this issue and you're coming you're expecting that i'm going to have solutions for you you have misplaced your trust my friend well that is the stakeholder process you say hey stakeholder you care about this thing which you clearly do uh given this ramp and then you say okay uh how would you like to what what outcome would you like to see as a stakeholder and then you say i don't know i don't care just do something <laughs> i don't want to be upset anymore and yeah, it's like i don't oh, want to be upset i uh, Look, I, I feel like a ton of people feel that way, and that's totally fair. And unfortunately, that's going to be a big domestic hurdle, which to your point, it's like, hey, if we want to make all this climate progress and switch away from um, oil, natural gas, then guess what? You're going to have less of it. And then to your point, where if there's huge demand in the wintertime for heating in a cold place, then it's going to cost more. And that's the inherent tension in it. And I guess it gets back to your original point of economics, finance. And we don't just live in the system where everyone sits in a circle and sings kumbaya all the time and hugs the trees. No. Do you think we could, though? What, descend back into the woods and live a more natural life? Yes. Live amongst the moss, amongst the branches, you know, and appreciation. domesticate some capybaras. <laughs> and appreciation for the simple things. Get back to our real roots. We could all be Amish, Steve. That would solve climate change. It would probably reduce gender equality and all these other things. But hey, if we want to solve climate change, we could well, all be you know, Amish. You know, that's not a bad idea. Maybe we have a mandatory one-year period where everyone is forced to go live without electricity. Go off the grid. That would be a great way to really cut back our emissions. It's like it's like the draft, really. It's it's a climate draft. You know, everyone's joining the climate army to really defeat our uh, our invisible enemy here. You know, people have actually thought of that. That has been a proposal in Congress, which is that we should have some sort of climate core such that, you know, in other countries, for example, let's say South Korea, um, you have mandatory military service by the time you turn 18 and you have to go in for, I think it's like two years, unless you have some sort of deferral, but those are few and far between. So the idea is, hey, we've got all these 18 year olds. They say they can't find good paying jobs. They say they, you know, are looking for alternatives to college and all this other stuff. Let's just start some climate core. You know, let's have a bunch of people patrolling the woods. I don't know what they would do, but yeah, it would get them busy. It would get them involved. And it would uh, fulfill, what is it? Teddy Roosevelt? Everyone likes him. He was a huge outdoorsman. It could be something like that. Getting back to our roots as a country, you know? Going out, shooting some birds, having a grand old time. Well, you know, it, as much as I love Teddy Roosevelt, and the guy was a, it was a badass, um, I'm going to get back to my roots, you know, as a consultant, looking at corporatism, capitalism are, are, are the modern ecosystem that we live in within America driven by consumerism. And I think, you know, you asked before about sincerity for these corporations really pushing, you know, going net new, you know, net neutral and, and everything. But really when you look at climate change and you can, you know, you look at the federal, at the federal level and say, oh, well, you know, we need to mandate more renewable energy. We need to cut coal. That's great and all. But if we look at really the bulk of where emissions come from, it's going to be the really enabling the system of consumerism, whether that's through the supply chain, through the manufacturing of these goods, through the creation of these goods, the just uh, you know disposing of these goods, it all comes down to consumerism. And I think ultimately, we need these corporations to do to manage their operations in a more climate neutral way, because. We live in a society that we, we we want everything now. I want what I order on Amazon to get here tomorrow. I don't care 
whether that's the most climate neutral way of doing so, you know, whether that box is made, that cardboard box is made in a way that has, you know, a net zero, uh, impact on the environment or whatever the, or, you know, the packaging or the product itself. So I think it does down to that because at the end of the day, we're consumers. We've been, we, we, we have this instantaneous desire to just get whatever we want. And I think it, the corporations ultimately will play the role of dropping our global emissions at a very significant rate by driving the supply chain to be more net neutral and really just go, moving towards more sustainable outcomes um, over time. Yeah, that's a great point to end it on. And I will say, um, just as a bit of trivia, there was a period of time in which after the oil crisis of the 70s, um, countries like Brazil said, oh man, these oil prices so high. Let's go all in on biofuels. Let's make it so that all of our cars can run off this stuff on sugarcane ethanol. And then you know what they did for like a year or two? It's like 90% of the cars being produced were able to run off of uh, this new ethanol blend that they came up with. But then like two years later, I don't know, things kind of stabilized. People stopped buying those cars. So a lot of it is, what's the momentum? What's the inertia? Does this have staying power? I think the last thing that I'd like to ask you about is hydrogen. A lot of people, you know, really, you know, gas this up pun intended, as <laughs> the next solution here. They're like, oh, we've got to get, and they differentiate. They're like, blue hydrogen, that's going to be natural gas, that's going to be fossil fuel powered, and then we're going to have green hydrogen. That's like solar hydrogen, which you make through electrolysis, and you know that's going to be the good stuff. So how do you feel about hydrogen, Steve? Honestly, Nick, I don't know too much about hydrogen. I've I've heard about it as sort of one of these alternatives that is is somewhat gaining momentum. There's a lot of interest within the research space. There's a lot of companies that are working towards developing solutions, vehicles that are built around hydrogen. But truthfully, I don't know enough about it. I know it's I, I would assume that at a in order for it, it's at a rather infantile level if we're thinking about how we can really scale it to solve a lot of the global problems. So you know, maybe enlighten me, Nick, with all your with all the grooves in your brain. What's the benefit here of of, of hydrogen, and, and is it really gonna is it really gonna solve our problems? I'm not gonna give that information out for free. If anything, I'd like to be like the founder of Nikola, which was a SPAC that defrauded investors and had a faulty product. Their CEO was a total charlatan. Said, "Hey, look, we've got these hydrogen powered trucks." Meanwhile, in the commercial, they had a truck that had no hydrogen capabilities. They just pushed it down a hill and said, look, this truck is moving fast. <laughs> it's built <laughs> off hydrogen. Um, and unfortunately, that's something that's going to plague the space is, again, like you were saying, there's a lot of hype around it. And then there's also, I, I think, uh, a lack of willingness from the climate activists to really come to terms with it because it could be seen as shoring up and um, perpetuating a lot of these oil activities because you know people who live on who work on these rigs and whatever i don't know um you end up you can create hydrogen as a byproduct of some of the, the existing oil and gas operations and so it's kind of seen by the activists as hey you're just propping up this industry the same thing with climate or sorry carbon capture and sequestration which is used for enhanced oil recovery um which again props up the oil industry however we know from our projections um, where we've got all these supercomputers basically that say, hey, what do we need to do to meet our climate goals, right? And they model all these super complex scenarios. They incorporate all the feedback loops that go into climate change. And end of the day, they're like, we're going to need a little bit of carbon capture and sequestration. 
Because at a certain point, we got to get a little carbon negative here if we're going to meet our goals of 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that's kind of a freaky thought to some of the more bullish people when it comes to pure wind and solar and maybe you know battery storage, of course, is what those people have started to advocate for, wind solar battery storage. But um, it's, it's this contentious issue politically. And to your point, you know, it hasn't been fully proven at scale. However, you know, auto companies and oil companies are, you know, really a big fan of this because that means you don't have to change any of the current infrastructure. You can still have these gas stations. You can still, for example, some hydrogen technologies, you could basically, you know, put it into your car. You're going to have pellets that come out or, you know, it's, it's a similar sort of time period. I think one of the criticisms that's rightfully leveled at the EV space today is like you were saying earlier, Americans drive all over the place. This is a very big country. And so when you go to the gas station, it just takes you like a minute or two to fill up your car. Really not that long. That's what we're used to. Now for an EV, depending on the level of charger you have, how fast it is, it could take you like 30 minutes to just sit there and twiddle your thumbs. That's not something we're ready to sacrifice. Oh, you're telling me I'm going to have this car that I just have to sit there 30 minutes at a time every 200 miles? What if I'm driving cross country? What if I'm moving my kid to a new place when they're, you know, moving out of the house or going to college or whatever. Um, there's all these different factors that come into play where hydrogen is seen as very attractive and, and also on an energy density uh, basis. But that may be a conversation for another day. But basically, Steve, you know, your openness to hydrogen is a problem because it's reinforcing the existing power dynamics and you should feel badly about your assumptions. Well, I'm shamed, Nick. I'm guilted. I will flog myself later 20 times to account for my sins today. No need to be obsequious with me. No need to be a <laughs> sycophant on air. Well, how about, how about nuclear? You know, I think aside from, you know, the obvious meltdowns of the last 50 years, the, there's a lot of money still going into the space. You know, we've mentioned Bill Gates on, on previous episodes, you know, the big brain of the, of the hour there. He's, you know, throwing money at it. But what what I understand that there's this, trepidation to adopt nuclear as more of a as, a as a more widespread source of power of energy but you know it, it, i think it comes down you know you look at fukushima there was the, the the meltdown there the 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 environmental impact it had the lives it took you look at um chernobyl as well obviously everyone's sort of you know case study for for the downsides of of nuclear adoption but if you look at the effects of of oil and natural gas today, you know, from a pollution standpoint on how it's affected the air quality and inevitably led to respiratory conditions and even cancers in some studies. Is there, is, is that downside of staying where we are today? Um, is, is, or let me rephrase this is going to nuclear, knowing that there are these meltdown type scenarios that are honestly quite rare that can lead to, you know, this, this amount of damage. Is, isn't that still less than if we were to continue with natural gas, knowing the environmental effects it has on us as a species and our planet? So from a human health perspective, frankly, Steve, I don't care how good nuclear is. Public perception is totally shot. If you have people thinking that they're going to get radioactive poisoning, cancers, and all this awful stuff by living in close proximity to a nuclear site, then it's never going to get built. That's why you see a bunch of places, including I think you were mentioning in South Carolina when you were there you know, years ago that, you know, there's this big plant that the local utility company was still billing you for every single month because they were like, oh, we, we're investing in this plant. And then people said, no, 
we don't want this to go through after they'd already poured a ton of money into construction, design, the rest of it. And the, the truth is these things get shut down um, by activists. And it's like, what's, what's sort of the risk that you're taking here? It, it can seem pretty extreme in some cases. That's why um, SRM, small modular reactors, are seen as like, oh, we, we should do this. Um, let's just make the plants a little smaller and we'll put them in other places. Where there's not too many people. And, you know, maybe there will be less opposition to it. But ultimately, it's the same thing. And the reason why they were shut down um, in the aftermath of Fukushima in Germany is because of cost. Um, Angela Merkel's government was actually a proponent of nuclear power, but they shut down a lot of those plants because of the political will that materialized after Fukushima. They were planning on shutting them down anyway because of economics. But basically what I'm trying to get at here, um, to give a serious answer to your question, even though I would love to give a joke answer about it, um, <laughs> is you know, just as an investor, it's scary. It's terrifying, the idea that you could throw in billions of dollars into a nuclear project and then have it scuttled at the last minute by all these activists. Um, and that's, you know, that type of risk is not something that you can just swallow very easily. Um, but on the other hand, I think from the activist side, it's not even the traditional climate activists that you would think of. Um, because I really, I do think those people are going to have to come around to nuclear at some point or another, because when you're purely dealing with the climate change is a numbers game. And when you're looking at nuclear power and just how efficient, how much energy it can provide for as little land use as it needs, like for example, in the United States, sure, we've still got these, you know, public lands out west and the rest of it, but anywhere along the east coast is incredibly built up. The idea of putting in a ton of wind and solar on, on any existing land, people are going to fight tooth and nail about that. And not only that, but if you decide to go through eminent domain, you know, I'm glad that in this country we said, hey, it's not right that you should just be able to say, hey, there's a black community in the space of where we want to put this highway. We're going to buy out those residents and force them to leave. I'm glad we're not doing that that sort of racial discrimination anymore. But it ultimately comes down to like, where's the political will to even as much as people care about their solar panels, there's so much nimbyism and don't build in my backyard, go build it somewhere else that uh, frankly, I don't think these projects are going to get done fast enough. And then also because you're, you know, going through the environmental space, even stuff like wind and solar, like if you're doing offshore wind, it's like, oh, what about the animals? What's going to happen to marine life if we got all these turbines? And what happens during construction? Are we going to bother the whales when we're building them? Probably. Um, you know, the wind turbines are going to kill the bats. But um, basically, nuclear power, I think people are eventually going to have to come to it. But again, it's such a politically charged issue where if it's happening somewhere else in the country, you're like, oh, that's great. That's going to reduce emissions. But if it's happening in your backyard, you're like, I don't want a nuclear plant next to where I live and go to work and where my kid goes to school. So I just think it's too much of a political issue for us to solve in the next couple of years. It always comes down to politics, you know? You try to make progress and you get some a group of hippies and activists who just kick the can down the road, pull out funding, and we're left at square at ground at square zero. Competing interests, my friend. That was the whole thing. I think um there was basically we found a repository for a bunch of nuclear waste. I forget if we went with Yucca Mountain. I I think that's where we may be. But there was also another site. I think it was called the Hanford site. Um 
And basically, it got scrapped for political reasons. I had a geology professor who was actually working on it back in the day as a wee postdoc when he uh, graduated with his degree. And he was telling us, like, hey, you know, we found that this was one of the most, like, geologically sound places to put this waste. And it got scuttled for political reasons. So that's the reality that we live in. And uh, frankly, I'm glad that people have a say on what goes on in their local community. But on the other hand, when you're looking at something like climate change, like, unless you're France, which already has a ton of nuclear power, and not only that, but also there's the national security implications. Oh, are we going to have fissionable material? Or are we going to make bombs out of it? Uh, that's a huge thing as well. So, sure. Um, and thankfully, Bill Gates's uh, new reactor, which, you know, Bill Gates, he's doing too much, dude. He's got to tone it back. All right. You know, he's, you know, curing malaria and he's doing the vaccine stuff. And uh, I guess those are one and yeah, the same. Like, but we get it. The renewables. You've done a lot. He's doing You're too a smart much. Okay. Guy. You invent Leave some computer. You think us. you can solve all of humanity? Get lost, Bill Gates. Yeah, you made a, a Microsoft Word, and then you take away Clippy 20 years later, and you expect us to heap all this praise on you for all the good that you've done. Uh, a war crime. Know. A war crime. Yeah, it's truly a war crime. But Steve, here, I, you know, I wanted to focus on you this episode. Clearly, I'm too self-absorbed to let that happen. Clearly. So let me give you the final say. What do you, are you bullish? Are you bearish? Are you hopeful? Do you think they should install something like they have in bathrooms where it's like the little smiley face to say if you're happy with how it looks or if you're upset. Do you think there needs to be something like that for every piece of legislation or how you feel about your member of Congress? What's the solution here? Well, so I that we say, can make your voice heard, even though you don't have a solution, but you care about it. And that's what I, matters. My closing, my clothing thoughts. I'm very bearish. I think ultimately it comes down, like I said, to consumerism and even using myself as a, as a, as a case study here. What better way for us as a nation, as a global society to, to remain carbon neutral than to really distill the benefits of doing so to the consumer? You know, in my ideal space, I'm all my energy is coming from, from solar or renewable energy. I don't need to pay anything a month. I am living completely on the environment. My water, perhaps it's through rain acquisition or, you know, it's coming from, uh, you know, maybe it's... It's such a finance bro way to just say like collecting rainwater. <laughs> You're like rainwater acquisition. I don't know the technical term for it. But, you know, I'm, I'm living with my EV car. I'm completely detached from the grid. I don't pay any money a month. I'm, I, can, I have a clear conscience knowing that all the energy that I use comes in a renewable way and I have as close to a neutral footprint as I can. And I think the technologies that are going to enable that are, are, are already on the market. I mean, if you look at some of the stuff that Tesla's done, it's there. And I'm sure there's other players in the space, you know, when we think about solar panels and roofing tiles and rainwater acquisition technologies. I mean, they're all there. <laughs> Did you know but, there's different types of water, by the way? Look up gray water after this episode. Oh my gosh. I will do so. But <clears throat> no, I, I, I'm bullish on it. Again, I think for the reasons, like I said, once we can really distill the benefits to a consumer level, we're going to see a lot more activism, engagement from the community in support of these technologies. I think the private sector is going to play a huge role here in developing these technologies, being able to sell them and bring them to scale. Um, and I think the next 30 years going into 2050, we're going to see a tremendous amount of change in that space. I mean, even looking at the EV space, within a matter of really less than five years, Tesla has upped turn the auto industry. Every single automaker now has set targets that they're going to stop producing gasoline, diesel-powered vehicles by really by 2025 or 2030. 
which is an incredible change for an industry that for pretty much a hundred years has been built on that model. And within a decade, they're going to shift away from that. So I think the possibilities are endless. I'm bullish. Um, I'm throwing all my money into clean tech, climate tech, and I think it's going to be a very exciting decade. Well, when you lose all that money, you'll still have a place to sleep on my couch. Even though I can't afford a couch, I'll rent one just for you. It's okay. I'm hedging my bets with uh, my crypto mining initiatives. (laughs) Oh my gosh, crypto. Another conversation for another day. A great conversation. I want to say briefly, if you're listening to this and you think, oh, look, the private sector, they're doing a lot. Well, um, I would encourage you to go look up Europe and how countries like France, the UK, and others are like, hey, we're going to phase out uh, diesel-powered cars by a certain amount. And then magically, I don't know how these two are related, but magically, you know, a year down the line, the auto companies are like, yeah, we're thinking about that too. Oh, really? What a coincidence. Really, private sector innovation at its finest. At its finest, Nick. You're really onto something there. The smugness in your voice is really, uh, really hard to miss. I dislike the French. I look down upon them as a society. I really do think they are rotten. However, they've got some good food and I will give them that.